G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. We know that apocalyptic literature is translated or understood metaphorically. Other books of the Bible, or at least most of the other books of the Bible, we look for the literal understanding. But in apocalyptic literature, you're looking for the figurative first and then the literal application. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff starts a series on the book of Revelation. Today, he's talking about grace and judgment. He'll share about what God's mercy looks like and what it means for us to be his witnesses in the end times. Here's Pastor Jeff, starting in Revelation chapter 11. I'll tell you what I want to do to start out. Would you stand up? And if you're, if you're shy, hold on. If you're shy, you don't have to do this. If you're an introvert, I understand. But if, if you're not and you kind of want to participate here, would you stand up if you still ride a bicycle today? You still ride your bike from time to time. You don't have to be a serious trainer. But if you still ride a bike from time to time, okay, now, now remember this next question. Remember this next question. You're in church, so it's important that you tell the truth. <laughs> How many of you ride your bicycle sometimes without a helmet? Stay standing. (laughs) Now, everybody else, sit down, but stay standing if you sometimes still ride your bicycle without a helmet. And I just want to say that I'm not the only stupid one. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You you know, people ask me, and we're in Revelation 11, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because the Bible and its word is much more important than this. But I do want to tell you, people keep asking me what happened. I don't know. I I don't know. I lost about an hour of my life. Uh, I just remember thinking I should hit the brakes. That's my last thought. I don't even know why I hit the brakes, really. Uh, And I have two thoughts, uh, times that I probably woke up. One, I remember a lady saying, please, sir, sit down, you're injured. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? And I must have gone out again. And then one time in the ambulance, which was about a 40-minute ride to San Bernardino County, uh, I remember the ambulance driver saying, what's your name and your address? And I gave it to him, and I remember thinking, hey, I'm in the inside of an ambulance. And I remember thinking it didn't bother me, probably because I already had the morphine going through me. (laughs) But I don't really remember. I I, Honestly, I don't. And it's bothered me uh, that I don't. I can tell you what I do remember is I I fractured my wrist pretty badly. I got a full arm cast. This comes off on Tuesday, and then I get a half one. No, No surgery needed. It's growing back well. And then this arm, I fractured the, the elbow, and it's got some ligament damage, and it's a little bit debilitating, but it's, it is what it is. And then the side of my face here, I fractured the uh, socket here. That's what's giving me the most pain. About every day from about two to five, I have headaches. And the doctor assures me that in a couple more months, it'll go away. But this side of my face is still kind of numb. It's not paralyzed. It's just numb, like after you've been to the dentist. He says that will take pressure off the nerve, and soon I'll be back to normal. So that's all good. Now, people have asked me on Facebook or wherever, on Twitter, uh, why do you think this happened to you, Pastor Jeff? And I want to make a comment on that just quickly. Uh, there are a few reasons. Number one, did God cause this? 
Uh, God has been trying to get me to slow down for some time. And maybe God said, you know what? If you won't slow down, I'll slow you down. And it's been true. The last four weeks have been slowed down. Uh, I can't do hardly anything. It's just been recently I've been able to play uh, Tiger Woods golf with my father-in-law. But I haven't been able to do I can't run, so I walk the Claremont Loop. I try to every day, five miles to stay in shape. He said he, I can walk. And so it's been frustrating like that. So maybe God caused it to get me to slow down. And I have had some great time with God, just sitting, thinking, talking with God. Did God cause that? Did God allow it? Maybe God didn't cause it, but he said, you know what? I see this is going to come and I could stop it, but I'm not going to because there's going to be a great thing happen as a result of it that Jeff, you may never see. You're going to have to trust me. Is that what happened? Uh, Third, maybe it's just part and partial to a world in decay. My bike's in decay, at least it is now. Uh, uh, my body's in decay. My sight's not what it used to be. My thinking's not what it used to be. And the world is the second law of thermodynamics. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Maybe, maybe it's part and partial to the world in which you and I live. Bad things going to happen. Okay, or maybe four, and it's the one I tend to choose. I lean toward four. Maybe there's no cure for stupid. <laughs> I rode my bike very fast, going downhill, no helmet, with music blasting in my ears, and I don't remember a thing after that. You know, is it God's fault, really? Sometimes we do some pretty stupid things, and we say, well, this must be the plan and the will of God. The reality, though, is I don't know. It could be one of all the four, or it could be all four of the four. This is the message that the people in John's day are learning, correct? Uh, They're not being told why they're being persecuted so much. They're not being told why they are the objects of the wrath of the Roman emperor. They're just being told told this. As a matter of fact, you're going to see this message all through the New Testament when things happen because there's a lot worse things happen to you than this, isn't there? Some of you are going through some things right now that this pales in comparison. I get that. But the Bible doesn't give us exactly why. He doesn't give us an exhaustive understanding of why things happen to us. And all through the book of Revelation, we see that common chord through the Pauline epistles reoccurring time and again. Number one is, what we do know is God will use everything together for his good. We know that he will take a disadvantage, turn it into advantage, and use it for his glory. And we can know that. Without the shadow of a doubt, God's not caught by surprise. He knows what's happened and he will work everything together for his good. That's supposed to encourage you and me. We're supposed to respond differently to these things than anybody else. We are a people that are not pitied. We have a great hope. We have a great trust that based on what God did for us in the past and giving his son on the cross to die for us, we can trust him for every future event. And we can never say, God, do you not love me? He already stretched out his hands and died. He already said, I love you. You may not understand everything. Trust me on the basis of what I did in the past. Trust me for future events. Second thing we learned in Revelation is that present calamity God uses to help us understand that if we're going to put our faith and trust in anything in the physical world, we're going to lose every time. If you put your faith and trust and hope in your body, you will lose, especially the older you get. If you put your faith and trust in the created order, in power, position, remember what Paul said in Romans 8, that the creation itself has been subjected to futility in hope. God subjected the creation into futility. That is, every once in a while, it will raise its ugly head and show you that if you put your faith and trust and hope in the created order, it'll just be a matter of time before the winds and the waves and the earthquakes and the tsunamis and everything else will come in and wash all your hopes and dreams away. The reality is the question everybody has to ask is, am I good with God? Because his kingdom is eternal. It is unshakable. It will last forever. And one day I will be with God. He will be my God. We will be his people, right? That's what we learn. Third, we learn this. 
We learn when all these calamities are happening, one thing will continue to occur and nothing's going to stop it. That is, the gospel's going to go out in conquest. It's going to be good news for the modern, for the old, for the works of antiquity. The entire world, from the old to the middle to the new, the gospel will go out in conquest. That's what we saw on the white horse in the seven seals. Nothing's going to stop the good news of the gospel. Men's lives, women's lives are going to be transformed and changed. In Isaiah 61, we're told that he has sent the anointed one to do what? Bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to set the captives free. And no matter what happens on planet earth, marriages are still going to be healed. Estranged children from their parents are going to be restored. You and I, as addictions overwhelm us, stick to us like Velcro. We're going to be healed by the power and the grace and the transformational spirit of the Holy Spirit, God's work in us. No matter what happens in the world, you can always be confident. The good news of the gospel is going to go out and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it, right? Now, we come to a very important time in the book of Revelation. It's a very unique chapter. We said that the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. That simply means that's a genre of literature. Revelation is not the only book written like this. There are many examples of apocalyptic literature written in antiquity. We know that apocalyptic literature is translated or understood metaphorically. Other books of the Bible, or at least most of the other books of the Bible, we look for the literal understanding. But in Apocalyptic literature, you're looking for the figurative first and then the literal application. Second, we know that much of apocalyptic literature written in the early centuries was cyclical. Cyclical means that they would put one vision on the stage that would communicate a truth, wipe the stage clean, start all over, use different symbols, but communicate the same truth in a different way. In the book of Revelation, that happens six times. And the book of Revelation assumes that all of human history can be summarized in a seven-year symbolic period. Three and a half years between the time God created the heavens and the earth until the time Jesus established his messianic kingdom until the time, he, three and a half years until he returns. All of history in seven years. But three and a half years between the time Jesus established his kingdom until the time he comes again. That's why the numbers you see in the book of Revelation are 1260 days. 1260 days is three and a half years. 42 months. It's three and a half years. And time, times, and half a time. Time, one year, times, two years, and half a time. So all these numbers mean the same thing. They're all describing the types of events you and I can expect to occur from the time Jesus establishes kingdom until the time he returns. But in Revelation 11, something happens. If you've been through this series, you'll know that so far we've been through the seven seals and the seven trumpets. In the seven seals, did you notice what happened at the sixth seal? The Lord returned. There was an earthquake. The, the moon changed color. The sun changed its hue. It's amazing. You have second coming language in the sixth seal. You have it again in the sixth trumpet. You're going to have it four more times. Does that mean the Lord returns six times in the book of Revelation? No. It means that every cycle, every vision gives you the types of events that are going to happen during this time, which we call the church age. And then near the end, these are some things that are going to happen just before the Lord returns. Chapter 11 takes us through the sixth seal. So it tells us what's going to happen from the time Jesus establishes kingdom till the time he returns. But near the end of the vision, it's going to tell us what happens in this area just before Christ comes back. And so here's what happens. We're in verse one of chapter 11. He says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now here's what he's saying. 
measure the temple, measure the inner court and the outer court. Now, the Gentiles, not that all are lost, but in Old Testament language, and the language Jesus is using here through the, uh, the vision that John sees, is that those who are not in the inner court are referred to as Gentiles, the unbelieving world. He's saying in this passage, what I want you to do is I want you to measure the temple, mark those, sign those, put your mark of possession on those in the inner court, but exclude the outer court. And as you exclude the outer court, the ones in the outer court are going to trample on the ones on the inner court for 42 months. In other words, from the time Jesus established his kingdom until the time he returns, you and I should expect that if we're in the inner court, we're going to be trampled on by the world. Don't be surprised. Now, not by everybody, but you should not be surprised when you face the same kind of persecution Jesus himself faced. Now, what's he talking about here? What's this marking off? Uh, have you ever seen a school teacher? What does she do when she takes a group of students to Washington, D.C. to see the Capitol? What does she do as she's getting all the students back on the bus to head back to L.A.? She counts them all, doesn't she? Why does she count them all? She wants to make sure she has the same number coming back as she did going. The Bible tells us that God, on the day of judgment, wants no collateral damage. He doesn't want to lose not even one. So he says, before the wrath of God comes, after the events have occurred, and Jesus decided it's time for the return, mark the people. Let me know who's in the inner court. Not that he doesn't know. It's John being reminded that I have marked my people, and they will not be harmed by the second death. Remember, there are two deaths. If you experience the first one, you're spared the second one. The first death is when you die to yourself. It's that point in your life when you say, I'm not going to live for me. I'm living for Christ. And everything I have belongs to him. The Bible says you die to yourself in the waters of baptism. You resurrect to a new life. All who experience the first death, the second death has no power over them. They will never be separated from God and they will never face the wrath of God. So you have been marked. You have been sealed. And in the same way, that the blood is spread over the doorpost in Moses and the plagues. That's why Moses is mentioned and Elijah. As the blood is spread over the top of the doorpost and the sides and the death angel passes over to spare you from the wrath of God, so also in the same way, just before the second coming of Christ, guess what? He says, Mark, seal, number my people. I want no collateral damage. We saw it in chapter seven, verse three, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Seal them until the day of redemption. Make sure the Holy Spirit marks them. Make sure we know who's on God's side. Now, let me just take a a pause here. There are still people when I start talking like this that will say to me, Pastor Jeff, this is why I don't like you and this is why I don't come to church. I don't think God should be angry. And let me tell you why you don't think God should be angry. Just honestly, number one is you've created God in your own image. You're telling God what he ought to be like. But there's an objective word of God that tells us what he's really like. And he is a God who is incredibly patient. People say, well, he said he was going to return. It's been 2,000 years. The Bible says 1,000 years is just one day to God. And do you realize the reason he tarries is because it is not his will that any should perish. He is patient. The day of grace and mercy is still here. The day of grace and mercy and wooing you and compelling you into the kingdom of God is still here. But there's going to come a time when those on the outside, the time for judgment is here. Grace and mercy is gone. If you're still on the outer court and you've never stepped in, or you have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, there comes a time in everybody's life when you've got to choose. And if you're outside, the Bible says you will trample on those who are on the inside. And if you're on the inside, you should expect it to occur. 
He says they will trample on them for 42 months. But the beauty of it is the next verse tells us the season of God's mercy and when it comes to an end. He says, and I will appoint. So God's response to the people in the outer court trampling on those who are in the inner court for 42 months or during the church age, he says, I will appoint two witnesses and they will prophesy. How long? 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. You got it? 42 months. We're going to be trampled on, but 1260 days. God's response is, I am going to send two witnesses and they're going to stand before the Lord of the earth and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, who are these two witnesses? We're in apocalyptic literature. We're not looking for two specific people. That's the mistake people make. We're looking for what the number two symbolizes. What does the number two symbolize? The people of God going out to do the work of ministry. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says after this, rather the writer says after this, the Lord, that is Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We see this all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you see the number two, it's God sending his prophets, his apostles, his people out to do the work of ministry. The number two represents us. We are the witnesses that stand before the Lord of the earth and proclaim the good news of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. Now, there's also one other thing I want to mention. Through the Old Testament, the reason the two by two, and this is in Proverbs, and I wish I had the time, and you tell I'm talking fast because I got a lot to cover, but you're still with me, right? All right. The reason two is mentioned is because there's something in the heart of God that doesn't want us to go out alone. And as you read through the Proverbs, especially, you discover that the reason we're symbolized by two is that when we go out to preach the good news of the gospel, we need someone with us for two reasons. One, accountability. You need somebody in your life that will tell you that's not appropriate. You are a child of God. This is not appropriate living. This is not appropriate lifestyle. It's not appropriate for you to talk like that, think like that. If you don't have somebody that holds you accountable, chances are you're not making ground on spiritual formation. You're losing ground. There's just too much in the world to take you away from Christ, not toward him. My accountability person in my life has been my father-in-law on numerous occasions. There have been times he's looked at me and he said something like, that's not appropriate. You're thinking the wrong way. That's not what you should do. You've got to make changes. It's done in love, but it's done because it needs to be done. You shouldn't be watching those things. You shouldn't be thinking those thoughts. You shouldn't be reacting to that situation that way. You with me? Uh, He preached a few weeks ago. Didn't he do a great job? Okay, then. If I have him as an accountability partner in my life, who's your accountability partner? And I'm not saying we meet every week and talk about things, but when we're together, there are things he points out that you got to make changes. Who's doing that for you? And if you have no one doing that for you, it's going to be a tough time to be an effective witness and standing before the Lord of the earth. But it's not also for accountability, it's for encouragement. There are times when somebody needs to come to you and say, look, I know you're frustrated. I know you're depressed. Look, there have been times, I know you may find this hard to believe, but people can be tough to work with sometimes. And it has crossed my mind a few times to get out of ministry and go back and do something else like coach basketball. And there've been times that my father-in-law has come along the side and he said, look, look, welcome to the real world, Jeff. This is what happens in the real world. You think you have a tough, what about people out there working jobs? They're not surrounded by Christians all the time like you are. And then he'll say something like, you know, blessed are the persons or the people who persevere. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. And he who endures, he's the one that received the crown of life. Who's telling you that? Who's telling you, keep up the faith, keep the course, stay the fight, stay the course, endure. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. The beautiful thing about the two witnesses is that as they're going out, and that's you and me, that's you and me now, as we go out during this time, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, 
We stand and we proclaim the gospel, but the next thing that the writer sees is a beautiful picture of the power. It says in Revelation 11 and 4, these are the two olive trees, and immediately we know what that is. It's out of Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. Zechariah asked the same question. Who are these two witnesses that go and stand before the Lord of the earth and proclaim the good news? He says in Zechariah 3, 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. That's you. That's me. It's the prophets and the apostles. It's the people of God represented by the number two. And the vision that Zerubbabel had that Zechariah saw himself is this idea that in the Old Testament, olive oil was the thing that fueled the lamp. Jesus is the light of the world. The church is the hope of the world. You and I are the light of the world. We are fueled by the seven lamps, the Spirit of God. I thought it was three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is represented by the number seven because it is the perfect Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit thrives. It takes the olive out of the olive trees and it burns continuously. The idea is not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. As you and I go out and we stand before the Lord of the earth, we're not on our own. Man, God is going to give you the right word, the right time, the right place. He's going to open doors for you, but it's not up to you. It's up to his power in you. What happens in this church is not because of a man or a group of men or women. It's because of the power of God and the spirit released in this place at the right time to bring revival. What happens in your life is not because some sermon you hear because the words were put together at the right time, right place. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in you, upon you, convicting you, opening your eyes, prompting you, a catalytic force to make you into the person God needs and wants you to become. We are not alone. We are empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 28, we're told that Go into all the world, teach them everything I've commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I will be with you even till the end of the age. Now, does that mean at the end of the age, God abandons us? No, but we're about to learn that the time of preaching the gospel and our time on planet earth to stand before the Lord of the earth and proclaim his good news, one day that will come to an end. He says, and I'll get to that in verse five, he says, fire will come from their mouths. What is that? Are we dragons? No, this is the fire of conviction. It's the metaphor, it's the imagery of conviction. Do you know that when you speak, listen, when you speak, people should be convicted. Now, some of you are just downright obnoxious. You're not convicting them. You're just taking people off. There's a difference. Conviction is when you speak softly and gently and you touch the lives of people around you. Now, I've got a gazillion examples of where I failed. Can I use one where I did well? <laughs> okay, so don't, you understand, especially when I'm on the 210. Okay, that's not a good example. So let's not talk about the bad examples. Let me give you a good one. I remember when I was 19 years old, and these are few and far between, unfortunately, and pray for me and I'll pray for you. I'm trying to get better at this, but when I was in, uh, 19 years old, I was at a basketball camp in Maryville, Tennessee, just outside Knoxville, and this is where you play five or six games a day. And there was a player on one of the other teams. I think he was from a place called Oneida. It was kind of up in the mountains. And, and he, he was very aggressive toward me. And everybody on my team knew this guy hated me. We never knew why, but they would spit on us as we walked out of the locker room, throw things at us, trash our rooms. It's pretty violent. And finally, one day we're all standing around and some of the other players said, Vines, why don't you just, why don't we just all gang up on him, take him out behind the school building, just knock him senseless. It was one of those moments where I had very uh, great clarity. And I remember saying to my friends, man, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Now, I don't know where that came from because I wasn't thinking that. <laughs> but it came out. Silence. Everybody just got quiet. Do you know the way you and I speak 
It's supposed to be so convicting, but we don't do it harshly. We do it so gently with great respect. But we're supposed to be the people that say, hey, man, you need to forgive them. Hey, don't hold that grudge. Hey, stay the course. Hey, let's be light to the world, not darkness. And the way you say it is not judgmental or arrogant, but softly in humility, acknowledging that you yourself struggle with it. And as you do, the fire of conviction comes out and people's lives are supposed to be changed because they're around you and me. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. We are not alone. We are empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So many people in the world think that the law of God is meant to restrict you somehow and to rob you of joy and peace. But in reality, the law of God is to make sure you have joy and peace, no matter what's going on on the outside, because you are secure knowing you are right with God. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.